Were you afraid? Somehow I didn't get afraid. I should have been. I guess because I didn't get far enough up to where they were doing a lot of uh, killing. Because I was walking down the alley, running down there, and ran right into a guy with a shotgun. All right there, put him up there, nigga. <laughs> so I put up my hands, and he searched me. They searched me. It was two or three of them. And took me around on the street there, between the season, down the alley, and then the street on Greenwood. Took me to the theater. Where was all the killing going on? All around North End. All around now. Greenwood, Frankfurt. Out in the circle in the back of Where's the hill? I'm out here now. <laughs> back of the standpipe hill here. And came in the back way and met a lot of opposition, but they finally overcame with the militia too, you know. Those words you just heard are from an audio recording of an interview with William Danforth Williams about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, courtesy of the Oklahoma Historical Society. We heard from Williams earlier in this podcast. He was a survivor of the massacre. Williams' parents were John and Lola Williams. The Williams were a prominent family that lived in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time of the massacre, also known as Blackwall Street. They owned a confectionery, the Dreamland Theater, and a garage, among other things. Their businesses were destroyed in the attack on Greenwood. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the Tulsa Race Massacre. Now you're going to hear another Tulsa Race Massacre survivor named Eunice Jackson give her account of the attack during an interview with author and historian Eddie Faye Gates, courtesy of the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum. But when the riot came, in 1921, we were sitting out in the yard, and people were running toward us, hollering. So my mama got up. She says, what's wrong? Where are you people going? He said, they're having a race ride over the hill. That was Brickyard Hill then. And, he said, and mama said, why are you running? She said, well, they're just shooting everybody they can. So they came up through the yard so fast, we told them, well, get your bag and let's go too, because these people are running, let's run. And they stopped us out on Pine and Greenwood. At that time, it was called the section line. And all this, just great crowds of us stopped out there because the police met us there. And then they marched us down to the convention hall on Brady. 
We stayed there all afternoon. They had popcorn sandwiches for us. So later on that evening, we were allowed to go home. And they said, if you have a home, you can go. So we left the home. That was on Marshall Street then and Elgin. So we got out to start home. And uh, my mother had a little bag with my brother's gun in it. And so when we started out, she said, what you got in that bag, Auntie? She said, well, these are my belongings. Let me see what you got. So she had to open it up because there's a lot of white folks standing around us with guns. And they took my brother's gun and said, you don't need this. So we went on home and we had some poor white people, neighbors. And when they were coming to set our house afire, as soon as they put the bucket in there with the fire in it and walk off, these old white people would go and put the fire out. That's how we happened to have a home after the riot. Between May 31st and June 1st of 1921, what the Oklahoma Historical Society calls, quote, the single worst incident of racial violence in American history, end quote, claimed the lives of potentially hundreds of people and left an entire community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, completely decimated. That community, known as Greenwood, an African-American district in North Tulsa, suffered a brutal attack by a white mob, which resulted in a horrific scene of chaos, destruction, and bloodshed. The area, with a population of about 10,000 people at the time, according to the Historical Society, had been considered one of the most affluent African-American communities in the United States for the early part of the 20th century. For that reason, it earned the name Black Wall Street. Although the Tulsa Race Massacre was really decades in the making, in the last episode, we explored the incident that sparked the attack on May 31st, which involved allegations that a 19-year-old African-American man who went by the name of Dick Rowland assaulted or raped a 17-year-old Caucasian girl named Sarah Page. Those allegations turned out to be false, but before that was revealed, a number of sensationalized articles were published in Tulsa's largest newspapers. For years, legend has it that one of those articles included one published by the Tulsa Tribune with a headline that read, To Lynch a Negro Tonight. However, no actual record or evidence of that article exists. Yet, multiple survivors and witnesses claim to have read it, including William Danforth Williams, who you heard from in the beginning of this episode. Take a listen to Williams describing the article and how he believes it inflames the circumstances that occurred just before the massacre. Well, all of us agree it started because of the threat through the Tribune paper that they were going to lynch a Negro tonight. That was in the red. I remember it's just like I was sitting there tonight, tonight now, reading that article. Just an article about that. Why well, about this now? But two inches long. So the blacks, by the time everybody read that thing, they said, uh-uh, that's going to be the lynching. <laughs> they went down there with, to see about it. So Bonnie Cleaver, that's a character. He was the Mr. Gunsmoke. He was just like Marshall Dillon back then. 
I thought he was the most wonderful man in the world because he had no fear. He, I, I saw a fellow have a gun on him. And he said, now, buddy, wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. Take that, take that gun down. You talking to Uncle Barney now. Put it down. You know, and got the man's gun. He had it on him. So that impressed me being down there. He was at the sheriff's office down in the county building, and all this crowd around, black and white. So they were talking. It wouldn't be any rioting tonight. It wouldn't be any lynching. And Uncle Bernie said, I want all of you to go on back home. He said, I'm going to stay here to see that you won't be. So they all started waiting. And I guess about a block away, somebody fired a shot. I don't know if it was black or white. And then right down there, <laughs> it's all hell cut. Cut loose and he fought all night. Next morning, they were trying to come in on Greenwood down there. Surrounded the place. And the militia came in. They were rounding up blacks, figured it get there, get them rounded up, which uh, would stop the thing. But see, what happened, they would allow those fellows to come in behind after they'd taken them. You know, the blacks had surrendered. Mm -hmm. They would let them come in and loot and burn. That's where all the damage is done. Now, the cause of it, they claim, it was that this girl said the boy tried to rape her on the elevator. They both worked it. Building downtown. Now that's what everybody says. But it's something you'll never forget. I mean, I'll never forget. I think Dave is really interested in finding that front page of the Tribune paper. I had a girl who told me she knew where a man who had one. She had seen it. What was her name? Do you remember the headline on the paper that night? To Lynch Negro tonight. That was the headline. That wasn't just the article. That was the that headline. That's why I always I'm doing what a water bill of me. <laughs> Oh, that's my wife's right. Check number 4459. I never would go to that detail. Yeah, it's a good thing. Remember, remember, I don't see the other reason. But anyway, this girl had seen a You, have you met Ms. Avery? Mm -hmm. Have you seen her work? Yeah. I don't think Dave's been able to the original that the Tribune had or the microfilm mm -mm. is not there. The no. page is not there. You can look all you want. That's what everybody <laughs> who's who's looking over, even in Oklahoma City, the historical society.
We've established that to date, there are not any known records or evidence of the Tulsa Tribune article entitled To Lynch a Negro Tonight. But you're about to hear from an expert who has interviewed several people who claim to have read it, including William Danforth Williams, who you just heard from. But first, Dr. Scott Ellsworth will give us a recap of what we explored in the last episode and later introduce us to the beginning of the Tulsa Race Massacre. All right. So, Dr. Scott Ellsworth, you are a professor at the University of Michigan. You teach in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. You're also a writer and a historian, and you've been steeped in research and knowledge surrounding Tulsa and the Tulsa Race Massacre for many decades. You are from Tulsa, grew up in Tulsa. What made you even become interested in this subject matter in the first place? Well, you know, as a kid growing up in Tulsa in the 1960s, I can tell you that even though my family uh, history doesn't go back to the 1920s in Tulsa, we just go back to the 1930s. But occasionally you would hear adults talking about this and sort of in hushed tones. And, uh, you know, then when you'd come into the room, they would quiet down or they would not say much. So, you know, that's a way to pique a child's interest. There was also in the white community, you know, some bits of kind of urban folklore that went around. Uh, one was that there were bodies floating down the Arkansas River. Another, that there were machine guns set up on the top of some of the hotels downtown. So I heard these stories as a child, you know, and then in the eighth grade, we did have a textbook and there was a mention of the riot, but it was very glossed over. It was sort of, well, there was an incident in an elevator. Then some people kind of got out of hand. Some shots were fired. Some stuff was burned, and then the good white citizens of Tulsa rebuilt everything. And it wasn't until college that I started to uh, really look into the riot and to try to figure out what had happened. And so that's been a journey ever since. If we could just jump ahead now to the night, or the day rather, that Dick Rowland is arrested on May 30th, and then on May 31st, there's a Tulsa Tribune editorial. And on the front page, we know that there's an article called NAB, Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. But throughout the years, there have been accounts by witnesses, survivors of another article to lynch a Negro tonight. We have not been able to find that article. It seems that no record of it actually exists. And some people have called into question whether or not it actually ever existed. However, this article is largely blamed for inciting a lot of the angst that led to the massacre in the first place. Can you talk about what you found in your research regarding that editorial? I can, but I think it's important if we kind of set this up. So just to make sure we've got everything right. So it's on Monday, May 30th where there is this incident in the elevator. And we know that Dick Rowland rides the elevator, as he always would, to use the African-American bathroom on the top floor of the Drexel building. There's this young, white, female elevator operator. Sarah Page is running it. And we know at some point something happens. Sarah Page screams. Dick Rowland runs out of the elevator, runs out of the building, and presumably runs home. 
We also know that a white clerk at the Renberg's clothing store came to the conclusion that Roland must have tried to attack Sarah Page, that this was a sexual assault. Okay. So the police are summoned. So black and white detectives show up at the Drexel building. They interview everyone, but the police aren't super worried about this. They don't send out an all-points bulletin. They don't send policemen to Dick Rowland's home to try and find him and arrest him. The police seem to be dealing with this in a very calm manner. The next morning, Tuesday, May 31st, the police do go and arrest Roland and bring him to the courthouse, and he's put in the jail on the top floor. But it seems that the wheels of justice from the side of the police at this point, nobody is panicking. This is going very slowly. All right. That afternoon, Tulsa's white afternoon newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, takes a completely different take on this. This was a newspaper that was run by a gentleman by the name of Richard Lloyd Jones. It was very much what we would call in the form of yellow journalism in those days, very sensationalistic, out to sell papers, out to take on the morning Tulsa world. So what happens is the Bulldog edition of the May 31st Tulsa Tribune comes out at about 3.30, all right? On the front page, there's that small article of three paragraphs or whatever long it is, Navney Grofer attacking girl on the elevator, okay? But we also know that on the editorial page, there is an editorial titled Two Lynch Negro Tonight. I interviewed uh, W.D. Williams, who is a riot survivor, and others who read that article, described what was in it to me. There were other sources after the massacre or riot, black and white sources that alluded to it as well. Okay. So we'd had the text of that front page article since the 1940s, since a master's student at the University of Tulsa named Lauren Gill wrote his thesis on the riot. In the 1970s, when I was beginning work on my bachelor's thesis on the riot, which became my book, I eventually convinced the editors and owners of the Tulsa Tribune to allow me to go to their storage facility somewhere on the west side, I can't remember where, and to go through the old bound volumes of the Tulsa Tribune from that. And there's just one set of these. And this one set was then later microfilmed by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. And so I found the volume for the you know, May 1921 Tulsa Tribune, and that front page article had been cut out, and then the editorial page had been removed as well. And if you look on microfilm, the Library of Congress copies, you will see that these things are missing. So whoever tried to hide that first article tried to hide the editorial as well. And we don't have them, but in a way, it sort of makes sense that we don't. So it is my belief that after that first edition, the Tulsa Tribune, or later that day, realized that perhaps this editorial had gone overboard. At any rate, they quit publishing it. But the fact is that the big headlines on the riot are not on May 31st. They're once the riot has begun. They're on June 1st. So everyone talks about, you know, we will save the newspaper where Kennedy died, and we think, you know, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1923. But the papers that most people have upstairs in the attic are from the next day when it was a headline. So it makes sense that first edition was not kept. That being said, the newspaper hits the streets, Tulsa Tribune hits the streets. Within a half an hour, there's lynch talk on the streets of Tulsa. 
that is why the editorial is seen as the catalyst for the actual attack on Greenwood. Yeah, but the other thing that we have to remember is that one year earlier, there was a young white ex-telephone worker by the name of Roy Belton. Roy Belton, two of his comrades, had hired a taxi cab in downtown Tulsa to take them out to a dance out in Red Fort. But their real intention was to rob the taxi driver. Not only did they rob the taxi driver, but allegedly, apparently, Belton shot the driver in the stomach and kicked him out in the road for him to die, and they stole the cab. Well, this murder was, you know, it was just called the most cold-hearted murder in the Southwest. Gigantic newspaper headlines all in the Tulsa world and whatnot. What turned out is that this became one of these just sensational crimes, like the Central Park Five or something like that. So the cab driver hangs on for a few days. Delton is arrested. He's brought to the cab driver who identifies him. Mm -hmm. The cab driver then dies. And then there's articles in the white newspapers about how Delton is going to plead insanity, that he's going to get off from this case. He won't be tried. And what happens is after one of these articles, a group of mass white men show up outside the courthouse in whose top floor jail Belton is held. They convince the sheriff to hand over the prisoner. The Tulsa police force is nowhere to be seen. A caravan of cars, perhaps two or three miles long, then drives across the river, takes Belton to the spot where the taxi driver was shot, and then Belton is lynched. So you got this white accused criminal lynched by a white lynch mob with the Tulsa police helping out. Okay. What's astonishing is what happened, this is one year before the riot, is that in, in the newspapers of the day, the city leaders in Tulsa, the mayor, the chief of police, everyone essentially applauded the lynching, saying this will show the criminal element that the law and abiding citizens of Tulsa mean business. We're not going to have any of this stuff. And the lynching is celebrated. The only place it's not celebrated is in the African-American community. There have been no blacks lynched in Tulsa at this point. And there is very much a feeling now amongst the black community that if an African-American is taken prisoner, that the authorities cannot be relied upon to keep this person from being lynched. So that's in the back of everyone's mind when Dick Rowland is picked up and then taken to the jail and this lynch talk begins and a lynch mob starts to gather in Tulsa late in the afternoon and early on the evening of May 31st. And so when that happens, we also are seeing sort of this vigilantism that has already existed in Tulsa and right. throughout Oklahoma for many years where sort of the local law enforcement officials will sort of deputize some civilians and just give them almost free reign to go out and act as extensions of law enforcement and it is in that vein that the Ku Klux Klan also sees a rise in their membership as well. So all of this contributing to that very tense situation and almost this sense of duty, I think, that some perpetrators of the massacre, the attack on Greenland had to right whatever wrong that they believe happened because essentially law enforcement has been sanctioning this type of behavior for some time now. It is, although things don't quite play out exactly that way on that night, because what happens is there's a brand new sheriff now. So you have this sheriff, Willard McCulloch, 
Lillard McCulloch, unlike his predecessor, as this lynch mob gathers, uh, 50 people, 100 people, 200, 300, 400, gathering around the courthouse and waiting for this lynching to begin, McCulloch, rather than his predecessor, has decided he's going to defend Dick Rowland. So he puts his officers on the roof and on the top floor, armed with shotguns. He disables the elevators in the courthouse. He blocks the stairs, and he's not going to give up Dick Rowland to a lynch mob, okay? So this is me. So the crowd starts to grow. Meanwhile, in Greenwood, there's great concern starts to go. Um, you know, we have accounts of, of African-American men, women too probably, uh, who uh, start to gather and say, we're not going to let this happen here. An African-American World War I vet jumps on the stage at the Williams Greenland Theater and says, shut this place down, we're not going to happen. So what happens is at about 7 o'clock that evening, a group of 25 black men armed with rifles and shotguns, uh, some of them wearing their World War I uniforms, gets into cars and they go down to the courthouse. They present themselves to the sheriff and say, we are here to help defend the prisoner, to help you defend the prisoner of Russia. The sheriff tells them, get the hell out of here. And they go back to Greenwood. But their appearance absolutely enrages the white mob who was there to go see a lynching. And now the whites, now they go home to get their own guns. They've seen black men with guns. A group of whites tries to break into the National Guard Armory to steal the Springfield rifles that are there. And they're going to get prepared and, if necessary, to storm the jail. So lots of rumors as the hours go by, the white mob grows, they want more things to happen. And then around 10 o'clock that night, a false rumor hits Greenwood that the whites are storming the jail to lynch Dick Rowan. And so this time, a group of 75 black men armed with rifles and pistols and shotguns, once again in a caravan of cars, go down to the courthouse, present themselves to Sheriff McCulloch and say, we're here to help defend the prisoner. McCulloch again tells them to get out of here. As they're leaving, an elderly white man attempts to disarm a black war vet. A shot goes off and the riot or massacre begins. But it's important to remember that at that very moment, the mob doesn't care about Dick Rowland anymore. Nobody's going to bother Dick Rowland at all. He's gone. Now their venom is certainly at these 75 black men, but it soon becomes this deep racial hatred of any person of color at all. An excerpt from the book Black Wall Street, written by attorney, author, and consultant Hannibal B. Johnson, who we heard from in the last episode. Within the nationwide context of lynchings and civil unrest, and in the face of an international push for rights for persons of African descent, the Tulsa race riot of 1921 occurred. At that time, the worst race riot in American history, the riot abruptly halted the steady growth and momentum of the Greenwood District. In a matter of hours, ignorance, fear, and hate dimmed the bright lights of hope that had shone for years. Daylight turned to dusk, dusk to darkness, Under cover of that darkness, all manner of unspeakable, unimaginable atrocities came to pass. Fires raged, dozens, scores, perhaps hundreds of lives were lost in the calamity. The unchecked, mob-driven lawlessness lasted less than 24 hours, less than a full day. But what a difference a day makes. More than 1,000 homes razed, 
scores of Black-owned businesses ransacked and looted. African-American churches in a 35-block area defiled, defaced, and destroyed. Property losses far exceeded the initial seven-figure estimates. From the Black Dispatch newspaper, dated June 10, 1921. Quote, In the loss of over 700 homes and 200 business houses, the Negroes of Tulsa have sustained a loss of over $4 million. Two of the finest hotels that the Negroes own in America went up in smoke. The Welcome Grocery Store carried as large a stock of groceries as did any retail white store in Tulsa. Mrs. Williams, who owned the Dreamland Theaters in Tulsa, Muskogee, and Okmulgee, was perhaps one of the foremost Negro businesswomen in the United States. She has one three-story brick on Greenwood, which housed her big confectionery, and the other floors were used for offices for the professional men of the race. Farther down the street was her theater, the pride of the Negroes of the city. The street had located on it three drugstores and two newspaper plants. The Tulsa Star had a plant worth fully $15,000. Fully 150 business houses lined this street alone that required a Negro traffic officer to stand in the streets all day long directing the busy activities, end quote. Some African-Americans experienced double-barreled devastation, the loss of a home and a business in the riot. Among this number were O.W. Gurley and his wife, Emma. Theirs was the first business to locate on Greenwood Avenue. Disheartened by the loss of the home and business they had worked so hard for, the Gurleys did not rebuild. Beyond its monumental physical devastation in terms of persons and property lost, the riot also took a psychological toll too heavy to measure, even with the grandest of scales. So much was lost so quickly, so senselessly, the pride of a tight-knit community savagely wrenched away. The pride of a tight-knit community savagely wrenched away. Here again is Hannibal B. Johnson. white mob flooded into the Greenwood District, the black community, looting, burning, destroying very much everything in sight. There was some black resistance initially, but the black community was totally outnumbered. And so in the end, when the violence was quelled by the National Guard the next day, the afternoon of June 1st, 1921, we believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people had lost their lives. Property damage ranged from $1.5 to $2 million conservatively estimated, which would be well beyond $25 million in today's money. The whole 35 square blocks, which was the Greenwood community, was decimated by fire and by violence. Many black families spent days, months, weeks living in tent cities set up by the Red Cross. And black people were actually interned during this period albeit briefly, and ostensibly for their own protection. Interned, like people of Japanese ancestry, were interned during World War II. In your book, Black Wall Street, which is a really good book, and I suggest folks read it if they haven't, you had some eyewitness accounts from survivors. Can you just recount briefly what some of the survivors were describing uh, when the massacre was happening right in front of their eyes? 
you know, it's interesting. I, I think most most of those witnesses to that tragedy and travesty talk about fear and the lack of security and safety that we so often take for granted. The sort of puzzlement as to the ability of one human being to treat another human being this way as something less than human. The, the thing that most of the survivors that I engaged with wanted most was to have their story told as a matter of record. Because the thing that added insult to injury after the massacre was the failure to acknowledge that the massacre had occurred. This history has been omitted historically from textbooks and the regular curriculum. It has not been talked about widely until relatively recently, the last couple of three, couple to three decades. And so telling the story, being honest about our history is critically, vitally important because we can't get to that point of reconciliation or unity that we would like to achieve unless we acknowledge our full and complete history and work to heal that history such that we can establish the trust we need to build the relationships that undergird that kind of unity and reconciliation that we want. The exact scope of the Tulsa Race Massacre is hard to put into words or numbers. Dr. Alicia Odawale of the University of Tulsa does a good job of doing just that. So Dr. Alicia Odawale, you are an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Tulsa, and your background is pretty interesting as it relates to our topic, which is the Tulsa Race Massacre. Your research project, Mapping Historical Trauma in Tulsa from 1921 to 2021, reanalyzes historical evidence to visualize what happened to Greenwood during the massacre and the years that followed. Explain what all that means. Yeah, so the Mapping Historical Trauma Project, that came about with the Centennial Commission to basically try and connect the dots between past, what has happened in Tulsa to today, because there's a lot of, I'll say, changes that have happened in terms of the boundaries of Greenwood, and really it's shrunken imprint now. We have to really think about what the original boundaries of this neighborhood and this historic district was and think about how that's changed through time through not only the effect of the massacre but the lingering impacts of our lowest equality indicators for the city of Tulsa are all around North Tulsa specifically black residents in North Tulsa and the ongoing issues with gentrification urban renewal and other sort of social factors that have impacted the boundaries of this historic district. So we're going to put new historical evidence, but also new archaeology in Greenwood for the first time to think about exactly how this community has changed over 100 years and how we can connect the past and the present together. Speaking of the actual assaults on Greenwood, 
something you wrote recently in The Atlantic caught my eye because anybody who's watched Watchmen on HBO knows what I'm talking about. So in a 2019 article in The Atlantic, you were quoted as saying, quote, the total estimated financial loss taking into account the destruction of both private residential property in the business district would be about 50 to $100 million in today's currency. The article goes on to say, quote, the neighborhood, in addition to being subjected to the on-the-ground assault, was bombed from above by planes carrying white assailants. So that's a lot. Let's unpack that. First, we did see in Watchmen on HBO, we did see a scene where it looked like the District of Greenwood was in fact being bombed by planes that were flying overhead. However, there hasn't really been any concrete evidence, at least from what most of the people who've researched this have found. So is there anything that we're missing that would actually suggest that, yes, people in Greenwood, not only were their houses burned, not only were they murdered, but they were bombed? Yeah, I think a lot of the evidence for that comes from testimonies from survivors. The survivors have spoken about this for years and years and years. But I think HBO really made people sit up and pay attention. It's like once you visualize this and you know put your Hollywood special effects on it it becomes that much more real for some people but for others they've known this for generations and these were specifically turpentine bombs that were dropped on this community and so what people don't really realize is that it wasn't just bombs there were people stationed in specific strategic locations with machine guns shooting in all different directions while bombs are being dropped, while arson is being committed, while murders are happening, people are being shot. And so there is chaos all around. So that opening scene of Watchmen, it doesn't really do the real story justice because you're seeing people still being able to move throughout the city in broad daylight. And a lot of this is happening in the dark of night and into the early hours of the morning. So thinking about this in pitch black darkness while this chaos is raining down on you and you are searching for family members, you're searching for anything you have. You literally are wondering where to run (laughs) in the middle of the night. So that's pretty scary and terrifying. So what you're saying is the Watchmen scene is not really as realistic as maybe we thought it was because the timing is a little off. In Watchmen, this was happening during the daylight, but you're saying this is happening in the dark of night. And so that just sounds like war. I mean, it's so hard to imagine. That's the only word that comes to mind is just war. Yeah. Yeah. And it really was because the people that were in Greenwood trying to basically protect this community from being burned to the ground, many of those are Black veterans home from World War I. So there was literally this effort to try and preserve life after fighting for their freedom. And they're preserving life from the very people they were fighting to protect in terms of their democratic rights. So it's ironic on a number of levels, but it's also sad that these veterans came home to a war after surviving a war themselves. Wow. You know, one of the things that I've read a lot when researching this subject is that during that time of heightened racial tensions, there were a lot of World War veterans, African-American World War veterans, who, when they were fighting in the war, expected to come back and be respected more so than they had when they left because they were fighting for their 
country and they were patriots and they got home. And quite honestly, the opposite happened for most people. If you know (laughs) of an instance where a black soldier was treated better when he came home than before he left, let me know. (laughs) But as far as I can tell, the actual opposite happened across the board for the majority of African-American veterans. And some of the hostility from what I've read towards African-Americans specifically had to do with the fact that Black men were being allowed into the army and being allowed to fight in the war because people who were segregationists, for example, and some outright racists, they knew that these people were going to demand more respect because this is an honorable thing you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that comes respect. And so the idea was to keep them in their place. Yes, absolutely. And so when you're saying this, it just makes so much sense. And not what, no less than several decades later, we know part of the reason the civil rights movement was started was because a Black man came home from the war and within hours was beaten to blindness. He actually got into some sort of verbal altercation with a bus driver who I believe wanted him to sit in a certain location. Mm. And the NAACP used him sort of as an example to shine a light on what was happening to the veterans of that time. To be clear, the man I'm talking about, his name is Isaac Woodard. Isaac Woodard Jr. Born, wow, this is interesting. Isaac Woodard Jr., a Black veteran, was born March 18th in 1919. And we know 1919 is also known as Red Summer because of all of these so-called race riots, which many of them would probably not be classified as massacres as well, were happening. And it was so violent. It was such a violent summer on top of all the lynchings that were happening that they nicknamed it Red Summer. So he died, interestingly enough, on September 23rd in 1992. So that's a long life he lived, considering that he was a decorated African-American World War II veteran. And on February 12th, 1946, hours after being honorably discharged from the U.S. Army, he was attacked while still in uniform by South Carolina police as he was taking a bus home. The attack And his injuries sparked national outrage and thus galvanized the civil rights movement. Hmm. I just wonder if, because we do know that initially when the first group and the second wave of Black men left Greenwood and came down to the courthouse where Dick Rowland was being held, some of them were veterans, Right. Yeah. So then right. that must have really made people who were racists and segregationists angry. I can only imagine. Absolutely. I like the way you're describing this as a war, because while one side you do have these powerful black veterans and many people who aren't veterans, but still just as passionate about protecting their home and lives and families. There are people on the other side of this because Tulsa had one of the largest chapters of the KKK known in the country. So there's a lot of tension that was already there even before Dick Rowland's case came up. And there was this consistent narrative, especially among residents in Greenwood, because they know everything that's happening around the nation. But they have this sort of 
mantra, not here. This will not happen here and not again. So there's this sort of like, I don't know, mission on behalf of a lot of the men, women and children in Greenwood that we're going to protect our home and our, our right to exist in this sort of free Black space. Again, back to that Atlantic article in 2019, you mentioned that taking into account the destruction of both private residential property in the business district would be about 50 to $100 million in today's currency. How did you come up with that? And oh my gosh. Yeah, so my estimates are coming from not only the loss of the homes, which is over a thousand homes that were lost and businesses. So you have the loss of specific property, but also the loss of lives. And there's no way to put a number on the loss of life, but there's also the loss of safety and the loss of security and the loss of generational wealth. So you're less able to actually pass down land or pass down that wealth and income that you would have accrued if you were just able to live undisrupted in this space. My figure is also coming from the loss of objects and the loss of goods, the loss of services and the loss of familial connections because a lot of people moved and just never came back to the city of Tulsa. And there's a lot of people who had to literally pack up everything and people aren't even considering the loss of vehicles because people had to scrimp savings to secure vehicles, which was a very rare thing to have in the 1920s. So in terms of loss of property, vehicles, personal objects and personal memorabilia, family photos, and everything that constructs your life and the number of people that were living here, over 10,000 people living in the district of Greenwood. Once again, Tulsa Race Massacre survivor, Eunice Jackson. The riot was a terrible thing. The people were just running. They didn't have any homes to go to because the white people burned all the homes down, the businesses and everything on Greenwood. But members here in Tulsa came back and built it to what you see now today. Because Greenwood was a very, very outstanding little town. They had lots of killing here, high up on Greenwood. And when Mama first started bringing us up here before we moved, the uh, porter would say when he got to Archer and Greenwood, all out for Tushhog Town, Greenwood Street to Battling Ground. And that was on everybody's mind then. In the next episode, We'll continue our deep dive into the Tulsa Race Massacre, and you'll hear from a descendant of a survivor of the massacre. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you also visit our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and keep up with all of our episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from.